Before we hop right into this episode, let's play a little bit of Alana trivia. For those of you who are not yet my friends, who promised me they'd be listening, can you guess who my favorite band is based on my choice of intro and exit music? Let's see. Guys, we are back with day two of, well, I should say part two of our coverage of the United States of America versus Jelaine Maxwell trial. Our first episode was more about the pre-trial stuff, and today we get into the first day of testimony. So... I guess we'll start out by talking about the openings for each side. So the New York Times reported that the opening for the prosecution was done by Assistant U.S. Attorney Lara Pomeraz and focused a lot on how Maxwell, <coughs> excuse me, was Epstein's partner in crime in the sex trafficking scheme. Basically, what she did was she used the first victim's and when I say story, I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but use the first victim's story to say or to show how Maxwell worked hand in hand to lure these young girls in order to force them to engage in sexual acts with Epstein. I found this notable because, as we discussed last time, she is, of course, charged with serious crimes here involving sex trafficking. However, she is not, in fact, charged with any overt acts of sexual abuse herself. This is apparently going to be brought up during the testimony, though, so we shall see about that. Uh, the defense argued, uh, the defense opening was argued by attorney Bobby Sternheim, who is a female, by the way, and they argued that Maxwell is being used as a scapegoat here in this trial. Um, this is a lot of their uh argument in general that the government fucked up with Epstein and let him die. Again, believe what you will, conspiracy theory-wise on that, but they're basically saying that because they can't try him for anything and they know the public needs someone to blame here, they're using Maxwell just for that purpose. Uh, the attorney also argued that it's definitely not the first time a woman was held responsible for the misdeeds of a man and this bitch even got biblical on her asses and she said, Ever since Eve was accused of tempting Adam, Adam with the apple, women have been blamed for the bad behavior of men. And you know what? I'll be honest. Hearing that statement under different facts and circumstances might have had me feeling some type of way as a juror, but in this case, not so much. But that also brings me to two points that I think should be pointed out um, about this first day of trial. There was a lot of discussion about two things. First is what the witnesses will be allowed to testify about. And by witnesses, I mean expert witnesses. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode about how the defense is going to call those memory witnesses. Uh, and also about how the <clears throat> psychologist that will be called by the prosecution is going to testify about grooming. 
Okay, so specifically they talked about how grooming by proxy or grooming victims on behalf of someone else is not going to be allowed to be testified about. Apparently this ruling is because they, the academic research isn't there yet, and that's according to a Vanity Fair article. Um, the other focus that I found interesting was there, there was a big focus on the fact that the four victims that are testifying here are recipients of funds from Epstein's Victim Compensation Front. Now, the reason I found this interesting was because this seemed to be a tactic by the defense during openings, and I'm assuming it will be during the rest of the trial, to point this out and to continuously point out that these victims were compensated by this Epstein Victim Fund. Um, just by way of background, the fund paid $125 million to 150 recognized victims. Um, many claims were actually denied after the interview process was conducted. So to me, that kind of says, yeah, these people are, the, these women are victims. Um, it, it certainly, to me at least, brings some sympathy um, I guess people might say, well, they've already received all this money, but, you know, I think most people understand that it's, it's really not about the money. It's about the recognition. And when I say recognition, I just mean, you know, the, this happened to me and I want it recognized, um, more than anything. So to me, I, I don't know how I feel about that as a defense move. I mean, I wasn't in the courtroom. I didn't really see how it was said, but from, from what I from what I understand from what I've read, uh, it, it seemed like she was kind of almost attacking the victims over this money and calling them money hungry and so on and so forth. So that was something interesting. But so next we get into the first prosecution witness. And this witness was called by Assistant U.S. Attorney Comey, and that's who questioned him on direct. The first witness was Lawrence Paul Visosky Jr. He was the pilot for Epstein for many, many years. I believe it to be exact beginning in 1991 and until 2019 when I, I actually don't know if this was elicited, but that may have been the plane that Epstein was arrested off of, basically. Um and so I learned from something I heard that maybe him and Epstein were kind of tight to some degree. They were obviously friendly for years. And he also, I heard he, he was given land. I don't know where the land was, but by Epstein. I also read that his daughter was also married on one of Epstein's properties. And listen, I mean, wh what does that mean? It, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um... It just means that he was offered a benefit from his boss, potentially, and he took it. I mean, you know, take take it as you will. Um, it's just food for thought. But anyway, in terms of testimony, he described the layout of some of the of some of Epstein's uh, homes where he was picking up luggage from. He was also asked about the hierarchy in Epstein's inner circle. And he described the defendant as the number two, basically, in this whole operation. But he added the caveat that 
Epstein was a, quote, big number one, close quote. Now, I'm not totally sure what that means, uh, like a big number one. I don't know what that means, but um, at least not in a court of law. But to me, this was almost a way that his testimony worked to the disadvantage of the prosecutors because it almost is saying, like, Epstein was in charge. He was making the calls. Like, yeah, the defendant was there, but, like, it really wasn't up to her. I don't know. That 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 was my take on that. Again, I'm not in the courtroom, so it's hard for me to tell how this testimony is exactly being said. And, you know, you feel differently when somebody says something a certain way. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I also do feel like, it, it like, again, it depends how you look at that, because some people might see that as, oh, look, this bolsters the prosecution's argument in their opening that, Epstein and Maxwell were partners in crime. They were number one and number two, you know, his his right-hand woman, if you will. Um, I don't know. So it kind of depends on how the jury took that testimony from this witness. So after all that talking in, close, uh, in opening arguments by the attorneys, we started to run out of time today, and they didn't get to finish with that first witness. So... Basically, at the end of uh, the course close on Monday, the plan was to come back Tuesday morning and finish the examination of the pilot and continue forward. So, going into Tuesday morning, the witness was cross-examined by defense attorney Christian Everdell. I actually felt like the defense elicited some pretty decent information here, considering this was a prosecution witness. So he test the pilot testified that he never saw evidence of any sexual acts on either of the two jets he piloted for Mr. Epstein. And he also testified that this was about a thousand trips between 1991 and 2019. So that's a lot of trips to say he never saw any sexy shit going on. Um, He also went on to say that he was mainly in the cockpit, but was encouraged by Epstein to use the bathroom when needed, and he would also sometimes leave the cockpit to get coffee. He, He added that he would have to walk by the couches in the plane to get to the bathroom. You know, like, I, I don't know exactly if that, like, sways my opinion here because I'm like okay dude you're gonna tell me that this dude's this this rich idiot's plane doesn't have other rooms in it they're they're just gonna be fucking all over the couches like I, I don't know I mean that just because they weren't there doesn't mean they weren't elsewhere but you know I, I guess he's just saying I didn't see anything going on on those couches um he also testified that he was never warned by Epstein to stay in the cockpit. Like, don't come out here. You might see something you don't want to see. He said that never happened. Um, He was also questioned about his impression of the teen victim, one of the teen victims that he had been introduced to, I guess, while flying her somewhere. And he stated that he believed she was, quote unquote, mature. Again, I I really, I'm unclear on what mature means um, to him. She was a fucking teenager, so you're either really immature or potentially lying, sir. I'm kidding. We're not here to call anybody a liar, but it's a kind of, kind of a weird thing to say. But now let's get to the real tea about this uh, Lolita Express here. 
in case you guys didn't know, people started to call Epstein's jet the Lolita Express because he's a fucking creep. You get it. If you don't know the reference, go read the book. Um, so he confirmed for us and actually kind of confirmed more so for one of these people, but that Clinton, Bill Clinton and Trump flew with them on more than one occasion. So, okay, guys. He also testified about Prince Andrew, as well as Senator John Glenn of Ohio, who, in case you guys didn't know, happens to be the first American to orbit Earth, and also the famous concert violinist Itzhak Perlman. Super random, but uh, Google him. You guys guys will get a nice little LOL. But yeah, so... He also had testified that he didn't know he I guess as like federal law doesn't require that he know every person on the manifest if it's a domestic travel um, or something along those lines. So I guess maybe this is his way to say this is his way towards plausible deniability is is how I take it. He's like, I don't know, it may be, but I don't know. I, I didn't need to know and I, I didn't ask. Um, so that was pretty much the relevant testimony from the pilot. Um, after the pilot testified, the prosecution called their next witness, who happens to be the first victim and is going by the name of Jane during this trial. Just so everybody knows, that was also a pretrial ruling that the victims were allowed to go by pseudonyms and did not have to go by their actual name. So in an article by the Associated Press, the witness testified that they met while she was attending a summer camp. For music in Michigan in 1994, um, Epstein and Maxwell approached her saying that he was a donor. At the time, she wanted to be a singer. And during their initial meet and discussion, they realized that they all lived in Palm Beach, Florida. And so basically, by the time she got home, she and her mother had received invitations to come to Epstein's house with Maxwell. This is super creepy. Um, you know, at some point after that, the invites to her mom stopped and she basically testified that she was being love bombed by Maxwell and Epstein. Um, she was being given all these gifts, brought on shopping sprees and honestly, and most creepily and disgustingly, specifically to Victoria's Secret for underwear. Ew. Um, now turning to Maxwell or the testimony specifically about Maxwell, The victim testified that Maxwell acted super cash about things and that it was like NBD, like no big deal, girl, like this is totally normal. So she also said, now this, this was kind of a shocker. She said that she was often in the room, meaning Maxwell, when the victim who, again, I don't know if I said this yet, but she was only 14 when this started, had sexual interactions with Epstein. Um, Ugh so disgusting. She said that the defendant taught her how to give sexual massages to Epstein and sometimes physically participated herself in these sexual massages. And this is the accusation that's been looming, even though there is no charge about Maxwell being the, like, abuser herself. But these types of allegations tend to make one believe that, yeah, maybe she should have been charged with the these specific abuse allegations herself and 
you know, I, I can't imagine that a jury hearing that is not thinking to themselves like, ugh. Um, so then, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into super details about her, this woman's traumatic experiences, but she did describe instances of abuse. The first time she said that Epstein grabbed her hand and pulled her into a pool house where he pulled down his pants and basically rubbed up real close to her and started masturbating. Honestly, part of me is glad that I wasn't, that this wasn't televised because she had testified that she was frozen in fear, that she had never seen a penis before and was terrified and felt gross and ashamed, which has to make anyone feel so bad for this 14 year old. I mean, nobody should feel that way. And I, I, I truly hope from the bottom of, my, bottom of my heart that these people don't, that these victims don't feel ashamed by this anymore. And I, I hope this helps them like speaking their truth helps them. Um, another time she said that he pulled her into a massage room where both him and Maxwell took advantage of her. She described it as quote, hands everywhere, close quote. And that he again started to touch himself. He's so fucking gross guys. And and so is she, but he, he's like, I don't even know. He's just so fucking disgusting. Um, she then went on to say that often sex to- sex toys were involved or it turned into an orgy with other young girls and Maxwell. That That's like a big zinger here. I mean, again, like I said, she's not charged with sexual abuse, but clearly, according to these victims, and at least according to this one so far, she was definitely involved. Um, she also testified that this abuse lasted from 1994 to 1997. So listen, yeah, this testimony would make anybody cry and makes your skin crawl and definitely is not a good look for the defendant. Um, you know, aside from them being creeps and trying to spoil this girl in an effort to manipulate her for Epstein, there is now testimony out there that Maxwell herself was involved in these horrific abuse uh, abuses. You know, it's always hard to determine how a witness, even a victim, was seen or perceived on the stand by the jury when you aren't there. But I would think it would be hard for anybody to hear this without it pulling at their heartstrings. And next up was the, probably the part that this victim has been, you know, dreading this entire time, I would think. And that is the defense's cross-examination of her. And this was done by the defense attorney, Laura Menninger. You know, she started off about why she had waited 20 years to report the allegations and why she brought a personal injury lawyer to her first meeting with law enforcement. And then she went into asking her whether when she, when the victim had initially told her family and close friends about the abuse, if she had mentioned or failed to mention Maxwell, um, meaning, did you only include, she was basically getting at the fact that, or at the point that did you only start to include Maxwell in your claims as of late? The victim testified that she couldn't recall. She just knew that she felt super uncomfortable when having to go into details, explaining these situations to people, which is obviously very understandable. Uh, She then got questioned about getting money from the fund. Again, I don't really understand why the defense is pointing this out other than to say to people, look at all this money she got. So 
I'll, I'll give you the specifics. She she received $2.9 million from the fund, and that was after attorney's fees. So I think it was about $5 million initially, but then, you know, us greedy lawyers take a lot of that money. Um, like I said, I'm really not sure if this plays in the defense's favor because it kind of shows that other people <laughs> believed her to be a victim. I don't really think that financial compensation for being abused is going to be enough when what your other abuser is sitting across from you in a courtroom, but I don't think it looked great. I think it kind of showed she's a victim, and I think the defense is emphasizing a point that doesn't really help them. Um, you know, listen, it's always cringy when defense attorneys have to cross-examine abuse victims. It, it, I mean, it pretty much always is, but we always have to remember that it is their job, and there is a way that it can be done professionally and efficiently. I Again, I wasn't there for this, so it's hard for me to say exactly how the tone was and whatnot, but you know, there, there, there is a non-nasty way that you can effectively cross-examine an abuse victim. You, know, you don't want to co- come across to the jury as some hardo um, attorney that doesn't give a fuck about people. Nobody likes that. Nobody, nobody likes a shithead. Right? I think we can, we can all agree to that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, also, I do want to just point out that the fact that all the defense attorneys here are women, I do not believe is a, is an accident. Um, I definitely think this is a tactic in terms of being able to question the victims about, you know, sexual acts and things like that. There is something to say about a female asking another female about these types of situations versus a male trying to elicit testimony from a female victim about this. So just something I thought I'd point out. But so, yeah, I mean, that was basically the end of day two. They didn't finish with her cross-examination, so they're set to start that again on Wednesday morning. I'm not sure how, how long that'll go. We'll see what happens. But while we wait for that, I'm actually going to do a quickie episode on this um, theory of false memories before before I do... I, I don't know if I'll do day three and day four together. We'll have to see what happens today. But um, yeah, so I'm going to do, like I said, I'm going to do this quickie on false memories for you because I find that shit interesting and hopefully you will too. And I still haven't thought of my sign-off motto, but until then...